Hey friends, Sean from Draft Therapy here, and on this Draft Therapy session, if you don't remember this, you're doomed to repeat it. Even before the current craft beer boom, the libations we know and love have a long and storied history with our Great Lakes state and the city of Detroit. The guest on today's Draft Therapy session is Billy Wallwinkle, assistant curator and oral historian at the Detroit Historical Society and host of the podcast Untold Detroit Beer. Billy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So for those unaware uh, about the podcast, can you just tell us what Untold Detroit Beer, what it's all about? It's all about uh, the really long tradition of brewing in Detroit. Uh, Most people know about Stroh's and they know about craft beer we have today, but they don't really know how far back brewing actually goes. And it goes all the way back to the beginning of the city. So what's your background? Did you have an idea about the history of beer in Detroit or, or what was like, what was the spark that kind of inspired you to, to do a series about this? No, I honestly didn't know too much about brewing in Detroit. I knew that 1985 was a dark day in Detroit's brewing history. Uh, I knew about modern Detroit beers. I knew about Ghetto Blaster and Brew Detroit and Atwater. But we, were, uh, we had an opportunity to do this podcast. And at the same time, my my coworkers were working on an exhibition about Detroit's brewing history, and it was it was fascinating. And we knew that the ex- exhibition we were putting out could only tell part of the story. So we wanted to jump on that and really magnify and, and add on to what they were doing. And that's how we got to do the podcast. And you got a few guests like it's not just you kind of reciting basically a history about it, but you have guests that talk about the history of beer in Detroit. Who are some of the guests that you got uh, for the podcast? Yeah. Uh, the entire podcast team at the society are huge fans of the format. And we all kind of agreed that just hearing me talk would after six episodes, we get kind of old. And we knew that hearing people's voices who were there, hearing the emotion of it, hearing their, their first person accounts was going to be real powerful. And that's why we reached out to John Leonardos of motor city brewing works. We got John Stroh the third of the Stroh Brewing family. We also got uh, Angie Williams of Fermenta and uh, Eric Brigerman and Scott King and all these really amazing brewers to uh, tell us their stories. You mentioned 1985. And, and again, some listeners may be unaware or viewers may be unaware of 1985. Can you can you get, just kind of give us an idea of, of what may have happened in 1985 that was so dark for Detroit? 1985 is when the Stroh's Brewery closed. Uh, Stroh's had been brewing in Detroit for 100, almost by that point, 135 years. Uh, and it was a mainstay. They were, they were on Gratiot, and they made millions upon millions of gallons of beer a year there. But with the changing technology, the changing beer landscape, they had uh, breweries elsewhere in the country. And so while they stayed headquartered in Detroit, They shut down the brewery and mass produced beer and large scale beer production in general no longer was happening in Detroit for the first time in 280 years. Yeah. And that that was one thing that, you know, you mentioned in the podcast, but it goes you don't just cover like modern day stuff. It's not just from Prohibition on. It's not just from early 1900. But you talk about the first couple episodes or the first episode is actually even like pre pre-United States, basically. It's colonization of Detroit and, and all that 
time yeah, period. So the, the first brewmaster came to Detroit in 1706. His name was Joseph Parent. He came at the invitation of Cadillac. And the reason Detroit needed a brewmaster was because you couldn't transport beer to Detroit. Uh, beer then, like beer today, doesn't age well if it's not refrigerated properly. And so, as you can guess, it doesn't last well in a canoe. So you needed a brewmaster to come to Detroit and start brewing on site. And that from parent on, uh, beer had been brewed in Detroit. Uh, we, we talk about the, the handover in the, from the territory from the French to the English and how the English brought new styles and their own taste for beer. And then we, ex- we explore that 100 years of ale in Michigan. And then we get to the lager revolution that the Germans bring with them when they migrate over here as well. So there, there's, uh, I like to say that beer grew with the city, but also changed with the city as well. One of the things that you mentioned in the podcast, again, you kind of go talking about the twenties and prohibition is that you, you talk about some of the personalities that, you know, at the, at the forefront were very for prohibition thinking that it would, you know, that alcohol was like a societal ill, uh, that, you know, it would cause higher efficiency, higher production to, to ban this, this, uh, this, you know, illegal activity, but it was kind of surprising that there's actually people that again, were at first really for it. And then at the end were totally against it because of, you know, they could see that it wasn't just uh, something that, you know, if you wanted it bad enough, you were going to get it. Yeah. There was a belief that if you could outlaw beer, that was in a generation or two, no one would drink anymore. No one would have a taste for it. No one would want it. People would see how much more efficiently our society ran but in the meantime, I don't think they anticipated the, the sheer lengths that people were willing to go to to get it. But it also exposed a lot of hypocrisy in our society where temperance and prohibition was really one of those things that applied to the masses and the poor and not like the wealthiest amongst us. Like even uh, congressmen and the president had secret whiskey cabinets all throughout prohibition. Right. And in Detroit, it was especially bad. Because we were one of the entryways for illegal booze. So millions upon millions of cases of beer and hard liquor came to Detroit. It didn't all stay in Detroit. It went elsewhere in the country. But we were a big battleground location. And it really, Detroiters really got to see firsthand how violent Prohibition was and how hard it was. Another thing I found really interesting was that you know, you mentioned that Stroh's had been or Stroh had been in the area for so long. And even during Prohibition, they had they were still releasing products. You know, they they diversified their profile, so to speak. People could still make their own beer based on some of the things that Stroh was was selling. Yeah, uh, they 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 skirted around the law, the law a little bit. And rather uh, ingeniously, they, they sold what became essentially homebrew kits. And we got John Stroh to talk about. Uh, how that whole saga played out on the podcast. It's an episode three. Go check it out. And it's it's just fascinating. I don't want to give give away the story because his ending is so well said. <laughs> but it was it was really interesting to see how smart Strohs was about surviving. Because by the end of Prohibition, they were the last ones. They were the only ones who had their brewery still intact. They were the only ones who were ready to make beer. Oh, I should say they were making beer before Prohibition ended because they were ready for the day to sell it. (laughs) 
but they were the only ones who survived. Goebbels, Pfeiffer, they all had to get back in the game after Prohibition, but Stroh's was there the whole time. Yeah, and I found it interesting because I the one thing I thought as you talked about it was beer is not just something that you can spontaneously generate. It's not something that you can pour out of a faucet, you know, like water. So there's some lead time that has to be built into that. So I was thinking they must have known ahead of time this was this was going to be a big moment for them. And I, and I just kind of found that really interesting and all the strategy that all the logistics that would have to go behind that to get to get that ready for a deadline like that. Yep. And John Strode talks about it, uh, the, the process they used to make the beer they could sell during Prohibition. And it really lent itself to immediately switching back. So they were really benefited about uh, by that as well. Yeah, and then kind of fast forwarding, I also found it interesting that. When you look at the title of the podcast, it's it's Untold Detroit Beer, but it actually is not just about Detroit, but we also get a, a story on how the Brewers Guild came together, how how these brewers in Michigan, you know, now we have over 300 breweries. But at the time, it was the same license to have Rose would have the same license as John Q. Public would have to have to make their own brewery. And it, taking inspiration from California craft brewers or small nano breweries or microbreweries, and then kind of trying to apply that same kind of idea to Michigan beer. But you talk to Larry Bell, you talk to other people f- from that time period, and just kind of like the the how Michigan beer came together. You, you cover that too, so it's not just. I think the name's a little bit of a misnomer, but you also get a lot of of history from just Michigan craft beer in general. Yeah, we really wanted to show how Detroit beer had changed because for most of its history, Detroit had its beer and Detroiters drank it. And it was uh, it was solidly uh, held like that. That market share was held on to by Detroit's brewers. And we talk about it in the fourth episode about how national brands come to Detroit and Detroit's beer brands essentially get defeated. Uh, throughout the course of 35 years. And we wanted to show that evolution that before that moment, Detroit's beer kind of operated in a vacuum. It, it, it was what people had. But after that, Detroit's beer needed to compete. And we also wanted to show the fact that what is Detroit beer has, has changed, like the idea of it. So when we say Detroit beer before 1985, those are breweries in the city of Detroit. But now you have this large metropolitan area that has its own brewers. It has Dragon Meat. It had King Brewing. It has all these different places in the suburbs that still count as our big Metro Detroit family. So we wanted to show how it has changed. And uh, sharing the story of Larry Bell and how he got started, it was a really good way to demonstrate how difficult it was, especially prior to the legislation changing. Uh, we got to talk with John Lenardis about the, the Detroit story on changing the legislation. But Larry Bell was one of the people really involved who is still alive. <laughs> so right. when we weren't we weren't able to interview Ben Edwards of Traffic Jam or Tom Burns of uh, Mackinac, Detroit Mackinac Brewing. So we really wanted to make sure we got that story because it, w- it was not easy <laughs> getting craft beer going in Michigan and Detroit. I also find find it kind of interesting that we talk about beer. You talk about beer before 1985 in Detroit, and it's almost all lagers. You know, I mean, I don't think mm-hmm. that really many ales were available on the market. But now with craft beer, lagering is such a more difficult process. You know, there's so many more steps that are involved in it. 
and it's harder to get that clear product. And then craft beer comes along and we start ales a little bit easier to manage. You can ferment it at higher temperatures. And now we, it's almost cyclical. Now we see a lot of breweries that, you know, brewers like to say, or people say all the time that the brewer's favorite kind of beer to drink is a lager. And we're starting to see that now kind of come, come to reality with, with the way that craft beer is going in Michigan. Yeah, we, uh, that was one of the fascinating things we learned when we were doing the podcast and got to explore a little bit is because when the German population really boomed in Detroit, they brought lagers with them. The difference between an ale and a lager back then is significantly bigger than the difference between an ale and a lager today. We have stories about ales back in the day that it was like drinking a loaf of bread. Like they were sometimes they were so thick and they were so muddy that by the time lagers came around, it was night and day. Uh, I got to talk with, when I talked to John Stroh, he mentioned that it was a, it was a fight to change the color of the bottles. They wanted to make them a darker color so the beer lasted longer. But Julius Stroh, who was president of the company during uh, Prohibition and the Great Depression, he fought a tooth and nail because his belief that people need to see how clear and crisp this product is. And so when I was talking with John Leonardos, I asked him. Why did brewers favor ales? And he said, they're easier to make. They cost less to make. And we can make a lot more variety of them. And we, we see this return because most of the ale producers in Detroit were done by 1900. They were, they were the kings. And then they came crumbling down when lager stamped them out. Yeah, I thought that was fascinating when he mentioned about the bottles, you know, I mean, it makes sense from a marketing perspective, you know, like you don't go to McDonald's and they don't on the menu isn't the the smashed hamburger that you actually get. It's the, you know, the Big Mac. It's really nice and looks monolithic. But the beer, it makes sense. You'd want to see that it looks, oh, look, look how clear this is. Look how good this looks. But it's it's a little counterproductive to actually wanting to drink it. You know, the taste isn't going to be yep. so great drinking out of a clear bottle when it's been out in the sun for who knows how long or at least in the light. So that made a lot of sense. But I thought that was really interesting because it's from a marketing standpoint, it's perfect marketing. But from a from a drinkability standpoint, maybe not so great. And even uh, back then, it was even more important to show how clear it was because beer was an alternative to water. In the 1830s, 1840s, Detroit had bad cholera epidemics. So people would either put a shot of hard liquor in their water to clean it or they would drink beer. So when you saw this crisp and clean product, you are far more likely to gravitate towards it than the the muddier drink. Okay, so how many episodes is this? Is where can we listen to this? Uh, it is six episodes long. Uh, they're about thirty to forty minutes a piece. You can listen to it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher. Uh, it's on Amazon Music. Pretty much anywhere you can find podcasts. We are making sure that it is out there and available. So then, do we just search "Untold Detroit Beer"? Is that how we can find the podcast on those services? Yeah. Uh, if you want to even do less work than that, just type in Detroit beer and it should pop right up. We want to make sure that it was really easy to find. Yeah, I'm always about doing uh, doing as little as possible. <laughs> so you also have an accompanying exhibit right now. Yeah. Uh, so we have uh, an exhibit at the Detroit Historical Museum at the corner of Woodward and Kirby in Midtown called Detroit's Brewing Heritage, where we get to talk about a lot of the different individual players. Uh, such as the Void family, the Kling family. We get to talk about Strohs. We get to talk about uh, all the different artwork that went into selling beer because you had to really pitch your beer to people when there was so much competition and you need to make sure your beer stood out. 
And we get to talk about this, the story of buying saloons and making sure that only your beer was sold there. And uh, it's, it's an amazing exhibition. We've, uh, we, it was a lot of fun to see it come together. Yeah, and some, some of it has parallels to today, like you said, labels, you know, making sure your beer stands out with all the competition now. I talk about that a lot in my videos is is there's so much competition that it's super important, almost as important what it tastes like is what it looks like, because that's what the that's what you see when you go to the store and you pick it off the shelf. If it has a drab kind of label, maybe you might pass it up for something that's a little bit more flashy. So, you know, it's funny how all that stuff kind of comes around and and is still pertinent today. Completely agree. You got you got to catch their eye when there's so much on the shelves. Yeah, there's limited shelf space and always fighting for more. All right, Billy. Well, thanks so much for talking to me on Draft Therapy Sessions today. Don't forget to go to your local store and pick up some Michigan craft beer to drink while you're listening to the podcast. That sounds like a great idea. Thanks again, Billy. 